This episode of Toddcast is sponsored by our patron, Yvette Fung. Thanks, Yvette. People say it gets better, but that isn't true in my case. It gets worse. Every day I get worse. Leela Alcorn. I am now about to make the great adventure. I cannot endure this agonizing pain any longer. It is all over my body. Neither can I face the impending blindness. I pray the Lord my soul to take. Amen. Clara Blandick I hadn't felt the excitement of listening to, as well as creating music, along with really writing something for too many years now. I feel guilty beyond words about these things. It simply isn't fair to you or to me. The worst crime I can think of would be to rip people off by faking it, pretending. Kurt Cobain. If life is truly meaningless and there is no rational basis for choosing among fundamental alternatives, then all choices are equal and there is no fundamental ground for choosing life over death. Mitchell Heisman I don't believe that people should take their own lives without deep and thoughtful reflection over a considerable period of time. Wendy O. Williams No more games. No more bombs. No more walking. No more fun. No more swimming. 67. That is 17 years past 50. 17 more than I needed or wanted. Boring. I'm always bitchy. No fun for anybody. 67. You're getting greedy. Act your old age. Relax. This won't hurt. Hunter S. Thompson. To talk about the rate of suicide in our society is to see only a portion of the more widespread human tragedy. Because for each person that acts on their personal realization that taking their life entails less pain than living it, there are many other people left behind in that wake, left to ponder the question, why? I'm Todd Lyons, and this is Toddcast Season 4, Episode 9, a show for and about public servants. On this episode, a conversation with Nancy Kehoe, a public servant whose life has been touched by immense personal loss more than many of us could possibly fathom. Nancy Keel speaking. Hi, Nancy. It's Todd Lyons calling. Hi, how are you? I'm good. So thank you so much for speaking with me today. My pleasure. Now, when I look at your picture, I see... I see a person that, that radiates sunshine, you know, someone that, that looks, I, I, I kid you not, you know, you look like you come from, uh, from a place of goodness. I think I do. 
How long have you worked for the public service? Since 2004. Okay. And uh, you've recently changed jobs. I have, actually. I started out uh, with Health Canada, and then I was with Shared Travel Services for a couple of years, and now I'm with the Canadian Coast Guard. Okay. Well, I'm happy to have hunted you down. It took a few bounced emails, okay. but... Uh... Okay. So tell me um, the story of your family. I think the message that I try to share with people is what I have learned through my unfortunate extensive experience with suicide in my own family. And I always start by saying the following to people, and that is that people need to understand that the primary goal of suicide, they don't go into it planning to end their life. They go into it to end the pain, which I'll touch on a little bit later when I speak about my mother's attempt. And it takes time to arrive at this because it's, it's, it's hard. But I think the number one thing that people need to remember is that we need to forgive them. But we also need to forgive ourselves because the one problem with suicide is people always look at themselves and say, what could I have done differently? What did I do wrong? So the grieving process when you lose someone by suicide is like no other grieving process because, number one, there are no answers. Even when people leave a note, it leaves you questioning so many things. And people react differently to a survivor suicide. When someone dies of cancer or a heart attack or something like that, or even by an accident, it seems easy for people to say, I understand and I'm here for you. When it's a suicide, people tend to not know what to say, which leaves the people that are grieving at a loss as well. And I think it's important that as survivors, we also forgive the people that don't know how to react to suicide. So I personally experienced quite a bit of it growing up and in my adult life. I was a single child of parents who both suffered a lot of physical and emotional abuse as children. Uh, My father was one of eight children of Irish immigrants, and my mother was raised by a single mom on Halifax Harbor during the Depression, and both mothers suffered from mental health, I learned later on. And they were raised by parents who believed that you spare the rod, spoil the child, and um, luckily for me, they didn't believe that when raising me. And they made great efforts to give me a good childhood. But of course, unwillingly, because of their mental health issues, I was definitely impacted by it. So where to begin? The first suicide that I personally ever experienced was my best friend at the age of 17. My father was, besides suffering from inherited mental health, he suffered PTSD from World War I and from being a lieutenant on the fire department back before there were smoke detectors, so he saw a lot of horrible things. And he had addiction problems, mostly to alcohol, but also to drugs. So his sponsor through AA, his daughter, became a very good friend of mine because we grew up in similar environments. And at the age of 17, she committed suicide in the Royal Ottawa, and I was the last person to see her. That was very challenging at that age because I realized as I got older and had experienced other suicides had given me a lot of clues, like she gave me a pendant. She told me a lot of things, how much she loved me, and things that when I look back on it and when I spoke to her parents about it were signs. And so I blamed myself greatly for not knowing that she was going to do this. And they blamed me 
they said, you should have known, why didn't you tell somebody? But of course, at 17, you don't know these things. So that was my first kind of experience. And it was very traumatic. But of course, back then, we didn't speak of it. Her parents had the funeral, nothing was discussed about how she passed. And it was just a loss to everyone. And so I buried it. I just put it away in a place where you weren't allowed to ask questions. And I got on with my life. The next person to commit suicide was actually my father. I was 19 years old. He was 55. As I say, he had a lot of mental health issues. And he'd had a stroke at age 50 after beating his alcoholism for two years. And he lost his job as a firefighter and was paralyzed, uh, crippled quite badly. And he struggled along um, as long as he could and then decided one year when I was on holidays, that uh, he would he would take his own life. He, he told my mother that he had to do it before I came home because I used to challenge him quite a bit when he would attempt suicide. I would get mad at him and I would say, don't do this to us, and which I've come to learn actually is a good thing. So he was the first loved one that I lost uh, to suicide. I was very angry for years. My mother, of course, was ashamed, uh, so it wasn't discussed. I should say, too, that my father was one of eight children, four of which committed suicide. So we cannot, for a minute, think that mental health is something new. It's been around from the dawn of time, I would offer, in different forms. The man that I didn't know who committed suicide Um, first in my father's family was my uncle David. He was an RCMP officer who took his life at 25. They always said it was due to a broken heart, a broken relationship, but I've also come to learn that that usually isn't the case. There's never usually just one reason why a person commits suicide. It's a cumulative kind of effect over years. So um, my father was then the the second person to die in that family. He was followed by his sister two years later, who committed suicide on Christmas Eve. My father never left a note, which bothered me for a long time. My aunt did leave a note, and I think that um, that was almost harder for her family than, than not having a note. So people have different views on that. I think at the end of the day, it doesn't really accomplish anything. People, people do what they have to do for, for whatever reason that is. And then three years ago, my dad's oldest sister, who was 91, actually committed suicide after suffering from schizophrenia her entire life. This one really rocked my world because she had fought her mental illness her entire life. She was diagnosed with schizophrenia in her 40s and went from being kind of one of our scary aunts to a loving, wonderful woman. And for her to make the decision at 91 really made me reevaluate a lot of my preconceived notions about suicide. I think what it really brought forward to me was, again, um, what I said at the beginning, it's not about ending your life, it's about ending pain. She had lost her husband, her children had all moved away, And uh, unfortunately, I think the rest of us kind of thought that 
she had made it through the worst of her life and that she was fine. She appeared fine outwardly. So that one, that one made me take a step back and really think hard again about everything I thought I knew and also brought up a lot of issues that I thought I dealt with. And I think one message to survivors of um, suicide is that you're never really done figuring it out. There's always going to be something, whether it's an article in the newspaper or it's the loss of a friend, you know, someone you know whose loved one committed suicide. It often brings a lot of your emotions back to the, the forefront. I get a little emotional talking about her for some reason more than I do other people because I feel like I thought she had she had made it. I thought that she had beaten it, and I, I think we need to realize that they don't really ever beat it, that none of us ever really beat mental illness. It's just a struggle that we have to fight every single day. And the other one um, that really, really affected me and which actually caused me to suffer some serious bouts of depression was my mother attempted suicide when I was eight months pregnant. That one was particularly hard to swallow because my mother was so ashamed of what my father had done and we weren't allowed to speak of it and she would never speak of it. And there's a difference between losing friends and, and I don't have any sisters and brothers, but aunts and uncles to suicide and losing your parents to suicide. My mother actually survived miraculously. But as a child of parents who commit suicide, there's that extra sense of betrayal, a sense that you weren't worth sticking around for. I think that's the best way for me to describe it. And when my mother attempted suicide, after we got her better and she was back to being able to cope, I think the birth of my daughter was a saving grace for her because um, it gave her something to, to love again and to look to take care of. But I then spiraled into a, quite a deep depression and Although I sought help, I never really gave myself the opportunity to feel everything I was feeling because it was just too much. It just, I would go to see somebody for a couple of months and when they got close to pulling the scab off and getting to the point where I had to really deal with some very hurtful issues, I would stop going. However, one doctor did say to me, you need to ask your mother why and tell her how it made you feel. So I did try to do this at one point, but she was still unable to speak of it and basically said that it had very little to do with me personally and that I was not even something she considered at the time. She just wanted it to stop hurting. So I was left with that. My mother has since passed. And again, I pushed it down and decided that I was okay and that I would deal with it. And but you never really do until you finally, how can I put this? Until you finally let yourself feel everything, including the anger. I had a lot of guilt with my father because the last time I'd seen him, we had a huge fight. And he had also attempted suicide in the past. And I was very angry with him for that and had said some very hurtful things, including one time 
throwing a pill bottle at them and saying, go ahead and do it. I think as survivors, we have to realize that when you're living with people that suffer from mental illness, it takes an incredible toll on you as a person. And you have to forgive yourself. Sorry. You have to forgive yourself for being human and for lashing out. And that, I think, is one of the hardest things that I've had to do is to learn not only to forgive them, but to forgive myself, which is still hard sometimes, as you can tell. As a result of that, I have finally, uh, four years ago, sought help with a wonderful doctor that I went to for, for about two years, so I actually only stopped going two years ago. And I worked through the really hard parts where he would say to me things like, so how did that make you feel to know that you were the only child and both parents committed suicide? How did that make you feel? In the past, I would say, oh, I, I, I was fine. I was okay with it. I understood, and I would stop going to see the person. But this time, I had to actually say I was angry. I felt betrayed. I was hurt beyond beyond hurt. And And I worked through it all. And I've come to a place now where I'm very open to speak about it. And I think the biggest shock for me was how many people say, oh, my goodness, I lost a sister, a brother, a child to suicide. And how the relief in their voice when they're finally able to speak about it. In Canada, the statistics are alarming for a country that is this beautiful and this this rich, approximately 11 people a day today will commit suicide in Canada. They leave behind between 7 and 10 survivors, close family members. So today, between 77 and 110 people are going to go through what I went through. They will deal with it differently, but I think the most important thing to remember is that it's the ninth leading cause of death in Canada. And it's something that when you're sitting on the bus going to work or you're at work, you look around and everybody that you're encountering has more than likely encountered a suicide in their life. And I think it's something that we need to remember. Because I was finally able to, to get some help and to heal, I then wanted to know what do I do if I'm ever encountered with this again? Because I know I made mistakes in the past with people that I loved. And I learned about all the different stages that you go through in any death, but especially with suicide. And the first thing I think with any death is shock and numbness. But with suicide, it is almost a crippling sense of horror, I guess is the word I can say, because you you imagine that there must have been something you could have done or said, and it's very hard to imagine that your loved one didn't reach out and didn't feel that they were able to to ask you for help. And that's something that takes a long time to resolve and often is never really completely resolved. My father was a firefighter. He loved the fire department, and he committed suicide at his old fire station when they were out on a call. And I think about that often, about how lonely he must have been those last moments. 
and about my mother, that she didn't see any point, even though I was pregnant. There was no point that she could, she couldn't even see the fact that she was going to have a grandchild. That it's, they're that far removed from their normal self, from their loved ones. And it's something that you struggle with probably for the rest of your life. The other thing that is kind of different with a suicide, although I think you do experience some anger losing someone, period. But when someone commits suicide, there's a lot of anger and a lot of guilt. At the person who passed away, um, I was furious with both parents for years. I was also mad at myself for not doing more. And I think that's something that I can only say to people that you need to get professional help with. You can read books. You can um, try to say it, that you don't feel these things, but I can guarantee that it's going to come back and, and bite you at some point. The other thing with suicide is shame. My mother suffered greatly with that. I was, from a very young age, able to say that my father committed suicide, but my mother suffered a lot of shame. And then, as I say for myself in particular with my parents, was why? Why was I not worth sticking around for? Why could they not rise above their own issues to see that I needed them, even as an adult? And then finally, when I had children of my own, I experienced almost crippling fear of them someday committing suicide. Unfortunately, my son did inherit a lot of mental health issues from my, my father, as side of the family, as well as my mother's. And I did something as a young parent that at the time I wasn't sure was the right thing, uh, but I realize now in retrospect it was. And that was I told my children about suicide. I told my children about the mental health issues in the family and that they needed to know that they might very well inherit mental illness the same way they, they inherited, my son inherited his father's epilepsy and they could inherit their grandmother's diabetes. I framed it like that. I framed mental illness the same as any other illness. And I, I warned them that there was a very good possibility they would inherit it. My daughter luckily did not. My son unfortunately did. And by making them promise me to never do this to me, which might sound selfish, I've learned from my son that that was the one thing that did stop him from attempting suicide on a couple of different occasions when he was on the street and he was on drugs and he was homeless. And when I took a course on mental health first aid, they tell you that that is something that you should do when you're faced with someone, be it a coworker or a family member or anybody who is having suicidal thoughts. I did have an experience in the last couple of years with a coworker who was going through some extreme emotional issues. And um, there was a day when I was able to take what I learned. And I'm very pleased to say that it seems to have worked. And we've discussed it, she and I, on many different occasions. And basically, we made a pact. I asked her to promise me the following things. That... If she made the decision to commit suicide, that she would promise me that she would wait 24 hours. I told her she could call me anytime or she could call the distress center 
Or she could call 911. A lot of people don't realize you can call 911 when you're suicidal. And she did this. She did this on two occasions where she waited the 24 hours. One time she did call me. The other time she just toughed it out. But she did wait the 24 hours. And often people commit suicide at night. And I think there's a lot to be said for the sun coming up in the morning and how it affects us. And she said that when she made it through the second time, she realized that she had done it twice and she could do it again. And that she, this would be a struggle she would have for the rest of her life. But that she would always honor our promise or her pact with me. I also told her, as I did my children, what it would do to me if she committed suicide. And I told her in great detail how I would be shattered, which again might sound selfish, but it helped. It helped her to realize that her death would cause me an incredible amount of hurt and that I would never really get over it. And she made this promise to me, and um, she's still here, still struggling. But I've learned recently that she has taken what she has learned and she's tried to help other people as well. So I did have to get professional help while I was helping her, though. And I think it's important that you remember you can't do this alone. Trying to help her caused me to bring back a lot of my emotional problems dealing with suicide. And I did reach out to my doctor who, who, who gave me some really good advice and told me, I was there for her and he was going to be there for me. So it was a team effort. But I think at the end, the one thing that I tell everybody who survives a suicide is that nobody can stop someone if that is what they decide to do. So if my friend had not kept her pack with me and had committed suicide, I had to accept the fact that that was her choice. And that's something that my doctor kept reiterating to me. This is great that you're doing this, but just remember, if she does not keep her promise and she does commit suicide, that it's not your fault and that it was her decision. There's really nothing anybody can do at the end of the day if someone makes that decision. We can listen. We can try to help. But that, unfortunately, is all we can do. And I think that it's important, again, that People who have mental health issues, people who have survived the loss of a loved one by suicide, and people who are suicidal, that you're not alone. You are in very good company. It has nothing to do with your social status. It has nothing to do with your wealth. You can be um, a millionaire. You can be a mother on social assistance. I'm very well off now, but I have been a mother who was single and unemployed and had some dark days, but it has no relevance on any of that. I think sometimes very successful people find it a lot harder to admit that they have mental health issues because the world perceives them as perfect in many ways. But I've known a lot of people. My parents were both very successful, as were my aunts and uncles, and other people that I've known whose family members had taken their own lives were very successful, and for that reason were too ashamed to admit that they had a problem. It doesn't matter. It's the same kind of illness as cancer or heart disease or anything else. And it's a killer. And it's something that we need to be kind with each other. Um, Sorry. One of the suicides that 
rocked my world was Robin Williams because he's a perfect example of someone who put on the mask, who always appeared to be the clown, and it's often the clowns who suffer the most. I, in my life, have covered up depression with being a clown, being the one at work who is always the most upbeat. And I think his suicide illustrated to me, again, that everybody, everybody is susceptible at one point in their life or another, maybe not to suicide, but to some form of mental illness, even if it's mild, for for your sake. But if you can't do it for yourself, if you can do it for your loved ones, to reach out to get help. Because once you've succeeded, which is a terrible word for a suicide attempt, I hate it when people say he's a succeeded or he succeeded at committing, committing suicide because it makes it sound like a good thing or a positive thing. But people that do commit suicide, I always believe that if they would have just held on for another day or another week, you never know what's just around the corner. There have been times in my life where I have felt suicidal and because of my children and because of what I've lived, I always promised myself I would never do it. And when I look back on my life, I am so glad that I didn't because I would have missed so many wonderful things. So I think that's the one message that I would give to anyone who's mentally ill and wants to commit suicide is just hold on because you don't know what's right around the corner. My son has beaten his addiction. He's not living on the street anymore. He's back in our lives. And we love him and we cherish him every day because he didn't make that decision. We still get to enjoy him. And we've learned from him and what he's gone through. So everybody's life is so precious. And I guess I would just encourage everybody to hold on. Sorry. That's okay. So you've you've made people make a pledge, make a pact, a promise that they yeah. that they won't do this. Have your children ever come back to you and asked you to make the same promise of Yes. I hid a lot of my mental illness and my depression from my children by being the clown and by being the goof. Because having grown up with two parents who were so mentally and emotionally unstable I know how much that does to a child. I, I was the caregiver as a child. I took care of my parents, although they were wonderful and they loved me. More often than not, I found myself taking care of them and telling them it was going to be okay and cleaning up my dad's messes when he was drunk and my mother couldn't do it. So I didn't want them. They know now that we're all adults, but I had periods in my life where I was very depressed and I would say suicidal, although I had already made a pact with myself. I had made myself promise myself that I would never do that to another person that I loved, that I would never do that to my children, my friends, you know, my, my family, because I knew what it felt like and the sense of betrayal that I felt. So I had already made that pact with myself, but making it with them as children. And I remember my mother being horrified that I spoke to them in such honest terms, I guess, about the mental illness in the family and the suicide. But I know now in retrospect, it was the right thing to do. So yes, I made a pact with my children and I've made a pact with others. And I think it, it's a good tool. It's not fail safe, but it's a good tool. 
people don't know what to say when someone says, I feel suicidal. They don't know what to say. They go, well, call the distress center or, oh, you'll be okay. You'll be fine. This is a tool that I find has worked for me, at least, with the people that I love. Because this can happen at any time in life, you can be 91 years old and realize, you know, I just can't take this anymore. How do you ever get over the fear that there's no expiration date on on someone's desire, that they could just decide to, to make that choice at any time? You don't. Do you revisit you those with packs it. with people? Do you keep bringing up the the topic on a regular basis so that it's never, you know, there, there's never complete silence on the issue? So with my, my girlfriend, the most recent person that I've, I've walked through this with, if I get a sense that she's, you know, if I don't hear from her for a day or two or if I feel that just in speaking to her that she's starting to slip, I will ask her how she's feeling. I will say, you know, how are you doing? Are you having those thoughts again? Are you having suicidal thoughts? Are you still seeing your doctor? And we'll talk about it. Luckily, she has said to me that at least for this part, at least for now in her life, she's decided that suicide's not an option. That doesn't mean that she won't change her mind down the road. I really hope that I'll be able to be there or someone will be there. But I never think it's off the table for anybody. Even people that I know that seem perfectly in brackets, I'm doing this with my fingers. I'm but I can't look normal, like that don't suffer mental health issues. Everybody at some point in their life, for one reason or another, has felt despair and felt alone and suffered a form of mental health issue or conflict or trauma. How we deal with it is different from one person to another. Someone might have gone their entire life not suffering from mental health and then, God forbid, lose someone, lose a child to an accident, and that would push them over the edge. So no one is immune to it, and I think that's what we need to remember. Nobody's immune to this, and no, it's never off my radar, ever. I talk about it all the time. I tell people when they ask me, how did your father pass away? I tell them, and I've often had people say, can I have my brother-in-law give you a call, or can I have my sister give you a call? I'm not an expert, and I don't presume to be, and the first thing I tell everybody is to seek professional help. But I think sometimes just knowing that you're not alone and that there's people out there that have gone through it, come out the other end, seems to give people hope. And I guess that's the only thing I can offer, is a little bit of hope. Thanks, Nancy. I really appreciate you telling your story today. Thank you. I hope it helps somebody. You've been listening to Toddcast Season 4, Episode 9. All opinions expressed on Toddcast are strictly those of the individual and are not necessarily those of their employer. Special thanks to our patrons, Steve Buell, Steph and Aaron Percival, Darlene Mulcahy, Abe Greenspoon, Terry Kelly, Yvette Fung, Elizabeth Ellis, Sharon Pinney, Catherine Parker, Tanya Garcia, Justin Henry, Rachel Muston. John Price, Taryn Wasson, Greg White, Joy Muscovich, Jackie Tweedy, M.F. Burford, Barbara Dundas, Rod Gallant, Daphne Guerrero, Jennifer Harju, Anthony Jazz, Saren McDashin, Tarek Paracha, and George Wenzel. Thanks also to the members of the Toddcast team who loaned their voice talents to this episode. Dominique Joseph, Vanya Ling, Joy Moscovich, 
and Rebecca Muse. However you found us, please help us bring meaningful content to the public service. Become a subscriber, share the episodes, rate our content, and write, and let us know what's on your mind. You can reach me at Todd at ToddLines.ca or start a conversation with fellow listeners worldwide on GCCollab.ca. Toddcast is planned, written, and technically produced using free and open-source software. Canboard, DocuWiki, and Audacity, all running on Linux Mint. Software that is free as in cost, but more importantly, free as in freedom. This episode's theme music was There's Probably No Time by Chris Zabriskie. There is time. Let's make the best of it. Toddcast content is free to use and share under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike license because, like open source, open content, and open licensing, makes the world a better place. I'm Todd Lyons. I'll see you online.